0: Hi, everybody. My name is Remy. Welcome to the For The Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. It is Jen Hatmaker. I would love to welcome you to the For The Love podcast today. Um, We're in the middle of a series that I am loving, and I know you are because you're blowing up my feet about it. It's called For the Love of Exploring Our Faith. And we are hosting some of the most interesting, important spiritual voices of our time. And they're all over the map, and they're bringing such wisdom and grace to this podcast. And I am so thrilled to tell you about today's guest. Um, And you already know it because you've already clicked on this link. But. We are so lucky to have Barbara Brown Taylor on today. And so if you don't know BBT, she is a New York Times bestselling author, and she's a teacher. She's an Episcopal priest. Um, Her first memoir, Leaving Church, it won Author of the Year from Georgia Writers Association. And her last book, Learning to Walk in the Dark in 2014, was featured on the cover of Time magazine. Um, Time also included Barbara in its annual list of most influential people. She's been on Oprah, Super Soul Sundays, and she's been on faculties of all kinds of places, Piedmont College, Columbia Theological Seminary, Emory, McAfee School of Theology. It, just, it goes on and on. Her credentials are really, really long and amazing. In 2015, she was named Georgia Woman of the Year. 2016, she received the President's Medal at the Chautauqua Institution in New York, Her work's been translated into uh, all these languages, and she is just, there's nobody like her. Uh, If you don't know her yet, you'll find out what I mean as you listen to this interview, but there's nobody like her. And her teaching has mattered so much to me and meant such a great deal to me at such crucial times. And wait till you hear all the bits of wisdom she drops um, over the course of the next 50 minutes or so. Um, And I'll just let you know right up front that I end it by crying and there's no getting around it. So I suspected that I was going to, I fought it back. But when I tried to thank her for her work, I just couldn't. Well, look, I'm doing it again. She is so, so special. And so you're going to love this conversation. If you don't already love her, you're about to. So I'm so thrilled to welcome to the podcast, Barbara Brown Taylor. I uh, mean this sincerely. Welcome to the show, Barbara. And you are are absolutely, and this is true, one of my favorite writers and favorite women and favorite (laughs) thinkers. And you have been so important to me. You've been one of my most important teachers. In fact, I was just talking online about... Um, this interview that we were about to start. And I said, I think I'm probably going to cry. I am so, (laughs) so delighted to meet you voice to voice. Thank you for being on the show today.
1: I couldn't be happier. And I can't wait to meet you this summer at Wild Goose.
0: Oh, I know. Uh, Oh my goodness. I'm so excited. And I don't want to be weird, but I may just grab you by the hand and pull you into a corner and hog you for at least an hour. I just want to (laughs) Forewarn you that I'm prepared to behave that way. Uh, I'll have on a red um, carnation. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yes. Perfect. Um, so I, I love so many things about who you are and how you lead and teach and what your life looks like. Um, specifically, what you've learned about truth and beauty and God and and what you've shown us all. But what it was just, if I can just make it personal, you showed me at a really crucial moment in my faith that all of God and His beauty. And Jesus and His ways cannot be contained inside any walls that any people build. Mm-hmm. Um, I needed to hear that when you said that. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if um, for my listeners that are new to you, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how, and, and this is not a short story, obviously, but how your faith evolved um, outside of any, any constructs that maybe once existed at an earlier point in your life?
1: I can. And probably the first thing to say is there were no constructs for me growing up around faith or religion or God. I had wonderful parents um, who were very much involved in academic life and who'd been very stung by religion earlier. So they did their best to protect their children from religion, which meant I pretty much had to go hunting for, for the constructs myself. I was an oldest child and found um, my first church when I was 16. I'd visited a lot with friends. I mean, you couldn't help but go with friends. But at any rate, I I invented most of the constructs or absorbed them from the culture. And because I live in the deep South, yeah. that is a, a kind of particular take that had a yes. lot to do with loud preaching and sinfulness and fear. <laughs> so so that's a construct that helped me a lot when I was fearful, but I, I got kicked out of that church early, which I now count as a blessing. So...
0: Mm. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, what, did, what heinous thing did you do to get kicked out?
1: I invited hippies. There were these, oh. They kept telling me, I know that this was a God, you know, God's house of prayer for all people. So I found some hippies and brought them there one Sunday night, and that was the end of that. So.
0: Well, you know what? That was a rough time to be in the Southern church. Uh, there was a, it ran a pretty tight ship back then. Yeah. Um, and so how did this all begin evolving for you?
1: No, I think I've backed through every door that has Mm. opened for me in my life. But I just I was a geeky college kid. And Vietnam was raging. And there'd been three assassinations. And um, the religion professors were the ones who canceled classes and sat out on the quadrangle with us and drank coffee with us late into the night so i decided i wanted to be a religion major and it just sure. sort of went backwards from there i went to seminary with no church membership no intention to be ordained i loved seminary um, worked as a secretary in another seminary just hmm. sort of kept back backing yeah. in to different kinds of calls
0: um, I love that. So it obviously was not, uh, you, that was not your true north that you said, I'm going to sit out and I'm going to be ordained as an Episcopal priest. I mean, oh, gosh. no. So this is where, you're, where you find yourself. And your work about sort of moving from the the structures and the systems of organized religion into sort of the more, I don't know, wide open spaces of the wilderness. Um, at least for me, you, you've given, uh, two really important gifts to the world, which for me was language and permission. Um, you put language around my own inner sense of longing for something different and thinking, well, surely this just cannot be the beginning and end of it. Um, you know, this can't be it. This can, and I'm a, uh, I'm a pastor's daughter. And then against all reason, I married a pastor. And so we too have been inside the structure, um, you know, well, in, sincerely my entire life. Um, and so when you put language around those feelings inside, I thought I was by myself. I didn't know how many um, other people there were wandering out into the great wide open wilderness. And then you gave permission um, to embrace that and to find God there and to be loved. And I mean, it changed my life. I, I really, I really, really mean that seriously. Now, listen, I don't know if you know this or not, Um, but you are a regular fixture on this podcast. Um, I don't know if my producer told you this, but, um, we, we reference your name and something you've asked in every single show. So when we wrap up, we ask all of our guests and now very famous question that you first posed. You were the first person that ever said it, where I heard what is saving your life right now. And, um, that's the final question we ask every guest on this show and the answers we've gotten Uh, they're all over the place. They give us a window into the world or maybe into just their day. Um, And so of course, we're going to have to hear your answer at the end of this show. But you, you posed that question in one of probably, probably my favorite book of yours. And consequently, I read things out of order. It was the first book of yours that I read, um, which was an altar in the world. And you kind of talk about your salvation journey. And in it, you said, I've got to open here right in front of me. And I, more or less every other sentence is underlined. So (laughs) that's how I made my way through this book. I just decided to highlight the whole thing. But, um, you said in there, my life depends on ignoring all touted distinctions between the secular and the sacred, the physical and the spiritual, the body and the soul. What is saving my life now is becoming more fully human trusting that there is no way to God apart from real life in the real world. I wonder if you could unpack this um, for those of us who maybe have been making those distinctions and have a hard time sort of unhooking those concepts from one another.
1: I I will. And because... At this point in my life, I use religious language less and less. I do want to point out that's the most dense confession I have ever made. That that you know that that the sentence you just read really to me is is what Christian faith has given me. So, so uh, there are just lots of kinds of Christianities. But what I guess because I spent an earlier part of my life in a pretty divided. Path, in other words, where I was encouraged to keep the sacred apart from the secular, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, It uh, just—I guess—I have a rebellious nature that just seemed wrong to me when, when I read the Gospels, and not just the last chapter or last chapters, but when I read the whole Gospels. Who could have been more invested in physical life on Earth than Jesus? I mean, I—I've been preaching lately on consider the lilies of the field, you know, the the way he could look around and see anything and make it part of what he was talking about. So, so to unpack it, it just, um, it seems to me unfaithful to the gospel as I've received it to attend only to half of what it means to be human which is to be an in an spirit or a spirited body I went to a gospel singing convention first one in my life a couple of weeks ago we sang for two and a half hours and it was all future tense it was all about heaven and and while it was it was wonderful and it was a great um step into sort of southern Christian heritage I really missed hearing anything about my life now mm. so 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 I don't think I unpacked that very well but just no, it you seems did. to me that you know as a student of the gospels um, it is too easy to think that those are all somehow fake stories about the spirit and the flesh is just a prop and i don't believe that so
0: I don't either and i i really appreciate your attention to that storyline, because I I sort of grew up in a, a pretty traditional, also s- mostly Southern church. So I'm really familiar with the constructs that you observed um, and also the ones you got kicked out of. I get all of that. <laughs> and um, I know when I grew up, I was taught both overtly and covertly to that, um, the world was my enemy. (laughs) Like I was, I was to fear the world and honestly, even my own body, like my body, but the heart is deceitful above all else. I, my body is some sort of lust machine, apparently to hear my leaders talk about it. And, um, and that this earth was just so temporary that I was supposed to hate it. And yet that wasn't what my experience taught me. My ex- my experience delighted in the world and found so much joy and beauty in it and in other people. And th- that was some of the earlier murm- murmurings inside my own soul that felt... Uh, Those are some of the earliest questions I had about the theology that I grew up in um, and wondering if there was not also a sense of holiness um, in grass (laughs) and in water and in bare feet. And um, so reading your work on that, where you just in no uncertain terms declare it holy, and declare it sacred and give us permission to just know God in those spaces and be loved by Him the end, like without any doing, um, is really, really super important. So speaking of sort of moving a little bit from the doing parts of faith, so your life has obviously shifted from, from working and leading um, at the De- at the center of the church community um, to working with students of many faiths, students of no faith. And, and you said this, you said, I find myself equally at home with the religious, the spiritual, but not religious, the humanist, the agnostic and the atheist, as long as they're not combative since I'm too quick tempered to resist a fight. First of all, thank you for saying <laughs> that. I burn pretty hot. Um, I love this ease that you have this Comfortable, like unselfconscious ease in getting in the middle of discussions like this that explore faith from a lot of different directions and that aren't going to shake your core beliefs or discombobulate you in a way which fair culture tells us it will. You know, that's what we are told is, well, that's slippery slope. You know, if you open up that discussion or if you listen to somebody else's perspective. So I wonder if you can talk to us about moving from working in those more familiar, traditionally Christian environments, um, and then what it was like to work in a deeper way
1: with people who don't believe the mm-hmm. same way you mm-hmm. do. Yeah, I can do that in my favorite Episcopal church on a Sunday morning. I can look left and look right mm-hmm. and see two people who don't believe the way I do. So, so great point. I, I don't have to go very far, but I also, I don't want to lie here. I want, first of all, to say that to have some of those conversations we've been warned about really did shake my faith, really did challenge my core beliefs, you know, really did move things around. And and I wanna be honest about that because it's part of the risk I think I'm called to take in any kind of search for truth never mind sacred truth that if if i'm not willing to be upset and rearranged and taken apart then how willing am i really to be redeemed so i don't want to lie that the difficult conversations come without risk they come with a great deal of risk but i've i've come to think of the risk as holy as well and that if i'm not shaken up from time to time i'm probably not listening hard enough to what other people are telling me and and you know you say you run hot i do too and there are certain people get me in a room with and i've got to really work on my spiritual disciplines of breathing and listening and loving my neighbors thank you for saying that about those conversations that's honestly
0: true you're right that exposure to our neighbor and to other people it can shake us up but that's not bad that's not to be feared, and there can be something, just to use an old church term, really sanctifying about that, and that deeply like works in our soul and, and begins to mold and shape our faith in, in wonderful ways, in, in amazing new ways. So I, I appreciate your honesty um, about that. Um, so I read that one of the hardest things for you— is when you are asked to do public speaking away from home. I identify with this so much. You, you, you say that during trouble and suffering and and heartache, people often expect you know the person at the microphone to have the solutions. Um, and I relate to this feeling, and I also relate to the feeling of wanting to give those (laughs) solutions, wanting to be the person with answers and sort of a helper in the room. And, um, and so, but you say you don't have solutions. And so how I wonder, do you curb that tendency that so many of us have to give, here's, here's three steps of advice I will give you. And, and if you do this, this maybe you can get some sort of guaranteed outcome. Um, I wonder how you've learned to approach the microphone solutionless um, as it is.
1: Uh, first question to you, what, what's your birth order and your family?
0: Ah uh, well, not surprising. I'm first.
1: Uh, how did I know that? How did I recognize a kindred soul? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I think that question came from an oldest child to an oldest child. So uh I don't know about you, but I have a lot of resentful younger sisters because Oh my gosh. Because I was early on put in charge of them and not only to give them advice, but keep them from falling out of trees and, and yep. dating boys and a whole lot of other things. So, so I think they were my good early teachers. Not that I've learned the lesson at all, but that it, it was disrespectful on my part to do their work for mm-hmm. them. It That's was good. disrespectful for me to substitute my life and my wisdom for theirs. And I'm still working on that one. But mm-hmm. I Yeah, as I moved out of family structure into church structure, I realized how often I was being asked to pour oil on waters that I thought the Holy Spirit had ruffled. And that Mm. seemed also not a terrific thing. So I I hope I've gotten more and more able Mm. to recognize people who really need a stretcher. They really need somebody to lean on, Mm. pick them up, hold them. And I I hope I can tell the difference between that and hitchhikers, because there are a lot of spiritual hitchhikers out there, too, who want somebody else to do their work um, who who want to take your advice and and they'll work it until they want something different and then they'll go find advice from somebody else but but often that's a strategy for spiritual bypassing I think it's a way of not getting down to the business of of um Giving your own advice of finding your own wisdom. And I, I I'm always in danger of sounding too individualistic because I get plenty of wisdom from the community, but there's hard work nobody else can do for us. And I think the constant going from workshop to workshop and weekend to weekend and book to book, um, is, is fine when you're hurting and limping and I've gone to sleep a lot of nights listening to a book on tape, but then there's, when I'm a little stronger, it's time to do my work and nobody else can do it for me. Uh, I
0: just wrote that down. That is, (laughs) it's funny because even as I sometimes struggle um, as the person to whom so many people turn for that counsel. I, as you're describing that, I realize that sometimes I too, I, I want the easy out. I, I want somebody else to tell me what to do, and to sort of mark my path for me, as opposed to doing the the internal work, which is way harder. Way, way- harder way, way hard and lonelier. And I think that's, that's one of its deterrents um, is that, you know, how many of us sincerely want to work through our own pain internally. Um, so I, I appreciate that wise counsel. And we just don't hear that very often. I, I do not hear that from my teachers very often. Like this is your work. So going back to your story, I know in the early nineties, and of course you've written about this, um, you and your husband, Ed made this super intentional decision to leave the city in order to live closer to the land which you write about as honestly as as beautifully as any writer on the face of the earth and i've heard <laughs> I've heard you in fact say that the land is your heaven on earth you mm-hmm. your where you live, so I wonder if you could tell us about that decision and where you went where you ended up going, and even what that whole not just geographical change but the lifestyle shift mm-hmm. looked like, and how did that location change sort of ultimately affect your your perspective, your teaching,
1: all of it—you mm-hmm. it did.
0: Mm-hmm. And it is
1: my, you know, my partner. So a lot of this had to do with him, and it happened on a walk. 25 years ago around a city park where we lived and he's 14 years my elder and he looked up at the sky and we realized neither of us knew what phase the moon was in he said you Hmm. know if i don't leave here i'm going to die a lot sooner than i have to wow that was the beginning of okay let's start (laughs) looking for where we're going to move yes um but the we did intentionally leave we interviewed two parts of georgia we both had family densely populated here so we couldn't didn't want to leave the state Um, but it it has been an amazing transformation i worked 10 years in a downtown church where my vocabulary was very much about aids and homelessness and and the corridors of power in atlanta and affordable housing uh, and I wanted to skip right over the suburbs and go to a small rural county and see how cows and pig farms and farmland might change the way the gospel sounded and maybe it would change the way I sounded. So the, the shift, I, I thought about this question, first of all, to, to be in the presence of nature writ large over which we had very little control. So I remember the first frost <laughs> when the peaches were already in bloom and and it froze outside. So Ed went mm. out and built fires all through the orchard and was out there wafting mm. warm smoke, trying to <laughs> save the peaches. We've given up on that now. You just don't get peaches that year. Um, life oh, yeah. and death, you know, the, the chickens that I raised from little hatchlings and then a hawk just swoops down yep. one day and carries them off and yep. caring for animals who's Water needs to have the ice broken off of it the it, it, elemental i mm. hadn't thought of that word till now it It was a move to mm. a more elemental life and a life more face to face with things beyond my life, where I really could tend to the garden, but i couldn 't bring anything in it to fruition mm. all by myself so yeah. Um, a much greater sense of my place in the family of things, you know, that wonderful poem by Mary Mm. Oliver, wild, wild Mm Geese," And it ends with sort of discovering your place in the family of things. And I found that here um, in a different way, you know, not better than Mm. worse than, but in a different way than I did in the city. So I'm glad I've had both. Mm,
0: Yeah, me too. I, um, again, that just sort of uh, circles back around to one of our early earlier points, which is that the world is profoundly holy and there is so much to be discovered in it and our place in it and what our limits are in it. And um, that, to me, when you talk about that, it deeply challenges sort of the American Protestant work ethic that says with just enough hard work, we can literally pull off anything. You know, we can, we can (laughs) control it. We can um, shape it. And, um, and that's obviously not true and leaves us with so much disappointment, both spiritual and experiential, but um, the earth teaches us a different story. It really does. And it's a good one. And it's good to feel, have our right place in the world. To me, that's a relief that doesn't make me feel small and insignificant, it makes me feel relieved to just mm-hmm. be this one simple part of this big, wonderful story that I didn't craft and I didn't start and I'm not going to finish. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I love your teaching on that. That helped me recenter um, my position in a way that almost no other um, teaching has done. All right, guys, quick break to tell you about something I'm super excited about. So listen, if you're feeling like you spend too much, eat too much, own too much, waste too much, you might want to check out the seven experiment video series and books I developed and take the seven week challenge against excess that literally changed our family's lives permanently. And hey, if you'll use the code podcast at checkout, you'll get $10 off. Any package. And if you already have the book, and some of you do, we have a package for you too, and the code still counts. You can find out more about all of this at the seven experiment.com. So, the book that you wrote in 2014, Learning to Walk in the Dark. That one, it had quite a reach and that book got a lot of attention from some really important people in places. It was, um, I mean, Time Magazine did a cover story on it, which is no small deal. I mean, it was on the cover of Time Magazine for crying out loud. Obviously Oprah had you on, on Super Soul Sundays. Um, and that book and your subsequent, um, you know, uh, pieces that you did on it helped us take a pretty good look at our view of darkness, especially those of us from the church who you say um, never have anything nice to say about darkness, that <laughs> from earliest times, Christians have used darkness as a synonym for sin ignorance, spiritual blindness, and death, which you're absolutely right. Um, So you assert that there's a problem categorizing darkness as inherently bad. Um, But rather, you talk about this really beautiful concept of lunar spirituality, um, in which the divine light available to me waxes and wanes with the season. And I, I found this really fresh, and innovative and refreshing teaching um, as a way to view both the light and the dark times of our lives. Can you can you talk a little bit about this, about what you learned and and what you sort of posited toward your readers and the world?
1: Yes. And I learned a lot about that book by talking to other people about it. Mm. I I took it on. I think the pastor in me has never retired. So I'm always listening to what troubles people. And, and being lost came up a lot, you know, can't see where I'm going, don't know where the church is going, don't know where my life is going. So it seemed to me that it was time to take that on. And then, gosh, did I learn a lot from literally blind people, Hmm. from people of color, Hmm. from all kinds of people about what a sticky piece of tape The words Hmm. are dark. Dark and darkness mean such different things to different people. So I I took it on that way. But I learned about the moon in my front yard, Hmm. that it was a much more accurate reflection of my soul than full sun, which was frankly just a lie. I mean, that was was just a pretense. That was to pretend to be fully solar was just to hide out a lot to not let people see a bunch sure. about me. So the the idea of waxing and waning uh as you said a moment ago was just so deeply relieving. Mm. It was like when God showed Job the universe after 37 chapters of Job's breast beating which he had every right it was still a real relief to be rescued from the center of the universe and I think there's something about the moon that comes and goes to identify with that gives me a a much more realistic place to to shine and go dark before God Hmm. in a good way not a bad way
0: yeah I I I can hardly think of anybody else that I've heard teach that. Uh, you know, a lot of our teachers will tell us to sort of, and I'm guilty of this too, just to sort of hang on in the dark and we're going to learn a lot in the dark. But the end game there is that the sun is going to rise again. Um, but I I really appreciate that you sort of guide us into what it means to sit in that and to rejoice in it, honestly, and to notice the the beautiful portions of of, of what the the dark looks like instead of just always bad and
1: evil. I think Christians come honestly by our view of darkness because Christian scripture is full of it. And so is the first testament of the Bible. So we come by it honestly. And and one thing you said, if I learned this in my front yard, one thing you said is exactly true. The sun does come up again and and the moon does cycle around again. So I don't think those teachers are wrong. But, but I do think there's a way to be in the darkness that's not all gritting teeth and, and closing eyes and taking ambience. You know, there's, yes. there's probably another way to deal with the darkness. Yes. So I, So I don't want to dispense with... You know, things we've been taught. It's not a pleasant place, but to begin to go voluntarily into it on a regular basis is really helpful when it comes involuntarily. When it comes comes to visit and I didn't choose it, I'm better equipped when I, when I do choose to sit there quietly. Because right. in, in many ways, God's job with me is to break my heart and tranquilize my ego and both where hmm. I live and do that as well as anything.
0: Well, one thing that you taught through that, which... It seems so obvious when I hear it, except it's just—it's not a way. I, I I just follow along a very deeply entrenched path of thinking about that metaphor, um, the, the way that um, I've always sort of considered it and been handed it and taught it my own self. But you know, in some ways, in the in at night, night is deeply wonderful. It's restful. It's our it's our time for our bodies to rest and rejuvenate and renew and. Um, and that's a wonderful part of the dark. I mean, and and again, chosen, as you mentioned, when we are willingly sort of put ourselves to bed um for a season, for a cycle. Um, I, I think that is also a really healthy way to think about darkness, which which isn't necessarily tinged with suffering, but simply tinged with rest. Um, and I something I'm terrible about, and you probably are better, um, but we're firstborns which just means I'm just accustomed to doing and I am a, I'm sort of a, that's my, that's my way. And that's my type. Mm -hmm. And I'm learning what it means to say, this needs to be a season of rest because nobody can be awake for six straight days. That's unhealthy for the Mm -hmm. body. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I, I, I just think you, you brought a lot of nuance to that concept and allowed me to think about I like how you called it the sticky piece of tape, that word, because it is, it's more Mm -hmm. than one thing. It's not just sort Mm -hmm. of this carte blanche sense of suffering uh, that I think even Mm -hmm. I've taught darkness as
1: you took from that book. And you are taking from this conversation my, my grandest hope, which is that people would pull out the file folder they have labeled darkness. Yeah. Look at what is in it and add some things to it. Yes. Because I don't know about you. I'd rather kiss somebody in the dark than in the light. Sure. I, I, I dream in the dark. Yeah. I I hear whippoorwills in the dark. I see stars in the dark. I mean, That's right. They, this is. This is not relentless dark. It's not cave dark, Mm -hmm. but you just put new things in the file folder. Mm -hmm. So what more could I hope for? Oh,
0: I love that. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara Brown Taylor, for saying that wonderful thing to me. Um, All right. So you're working on a new book right now. Are you, um, are you finished with it? I am finally finished with it. Oh, well, glory, glory be to God.
1: Um, (laughs) So it comes out next year, right? 2019? Yeah. One year, you turn it in in March and it comes out in April of the next year. Go figure. Uh,
0: I know. And by that time you can hardly remember what you said. You have to go back and remember where your head was. But um, you've said that you've been wanting to write about living with religious difference. I Mm -hmm. cannot think of, uh, time we need somebody mm-hmm. to lead us in this more than right this minute in mm-hmm. our culture, um, is that? So your new new book is called Holy Envy. Is that still the title? Did that t- title hold?
1: It did. It was challenged uh-huh. and it held. And yes. It. it um, yeah. It's. It dates back to Christer Stendahl, who was the dean of Harvard Divinity School for a while, and then he went back to Stockholm, his his homeland, to be bishop of the Lutheran Church there. And a Mormon temple was built in Stockholm, and people called upon him to protest it. And Hmm. instead, he went to the microphone and um, talked about three rules for religious understanding. And the first was, if you want to learn about a a religion, ask its adherents and not its critics.
0: Hmm. And his
1: second rule was, don't compare your best to their worst. Oh, my goodness. And the third one was, learn to practice holy envy. And I was fascinated by number three. I mean, number one and two are great. But number three, I I have been working on that concept for a long time, sort of like learning to walk in the dark. But I, I certainly have had a lot of opportunity to practice it because I've taught world religions for 20 years. And... So I experienced a lot of Holy Envy, you know, teaching my tradition from a more objective standpoint than Hmm. ever and teaching. I was responsible for teaching five of the major religions of the world over 15 weeks, graduates who might never look at it again. So it was really important to teach them more subjectively than ever Hmm. before. So needless to say, that gave me a lot of material for a book called Holy Envy.
0: Um. What, what else could we expect to hear you say in that book? What are you teaching us? What is your, what is your hope for Holy Envy that your reader will kind of walk away with if you were going to sort of give it a high level thesis?
1: It changed. I wanted it to be a classroom memoir. I'm going to answer your question any minute now, (laughs) but uh, I, it's very anecdotal. And so hmm. it is meant to be a very, very small window on a very, very large subject. It is one classroom in a rural college in Northeast Georgia taught by one Christian teacher who it, all of a sudden encounters the great wisdom traditions of the world. So anecdotally, I think it'll walk you through a Christian's reaction as she discovers that pagan um, lost parts of the world included Confucius and Lao Tzu and the Buddha and that Christians for a long time just colored everything brown that yes. wasn't was Christian. And and other religions have done that as well. But but I guess what I would love for people to come out of that book thinking is, oh, i thought that. Oh, I've wondered what that student wondered. Oh, i thought what she did. And I also I also have a lot of um, new Christian storytelling in there that I think will help people who would like some Christian ballast for being better neighbors to people of other faiths. I hope they can find mm-hmm. it in this book.
0: I have no doubt that they will. Um, mm-hmm. And it comes out next April? Next April. So speaking of your students in your classroom, you obviously love working with undergraduates. And then you know, people in their early to mid twenties in general. Um, and so one thing that I've heard you talk about and write about numerous times is, and and this doesn't frankly just apply to to young adults. I I see this very deeply represented in my age group too, and we're in our forties, but, um, I heard you talk about their intense desire to find their calling quote unquote, their calling, right. Which I think, is something that we're sort of this sort of packaged idea that we're handed to discover somehow this like tiny bullseye of our calling. And I like the analogy that you gave, um, because you said in regards to our calling, you wrote, I think we'd like life to be a train. You get on, pick your destination and get off. But you liken it more to a sailboat ride where the weather changes and the current changes and we have to work with others to navigate this the fluctuating conditions. And so you impart your own experience to your students who are trying to train it, essentially, by saying, I just thought I had to pick the right train. And I worked hard to pick the right train and darned if I didn't get off at the end of it and find out that it was just a midway station. That's such a, such a great analogy. And I was going through all my books of yours, um, this morning and to that sort of idea in an altar in the world, you also wrote, uh, you were talking about something different, but you said one night when my whole heart was open to hearing from God and what I was supposed to do with my life, God said, anything that pleases you. What I said, resorting to words again. What kind of an answer is that? Do anything that pleases you, the voice in my head said again, and belong to me. Mm-hmm. Like it makes me want to cry my eyes out when I read <laughs> yeah. it. Uh, it's so precious, but I'm sorry, so meaningful. Mm-hmm. Can you um sorry can you give us your thoughts a little bit on how we can embrace a life that is more like a sailboat and less like a train and one in which god says i just really want you to belong to me
1: mm-hmm. I think in a lot of okay. ways the troubles the institutional church is facing right now is a good thing yeah uh, because it has woken a lot of us up to ways in which our faith may not be acted out by going into ordained ministry mm. or by uh, working within those walls, which are good walls. We haven't had a chance to talk about how much I love my local church, but we'll get okay. back to that later. Um, but but there there is a way in which finding people talk about being public theologians now or journalists who take a, a theology class or people who go into business and want to know how, how faith informs the way that they... Um, Mm-hmm. figure out employee benefits, et cetera i mean there 's a way in which the the lowering profile of churches with any luck will will also bring about a kind of flowering hmm. of of faith of Christian teachings you know in in a lot of other places. I sure do find that with students there are very few students who want to go into seminary anymore. They're not a lot lining up to be ordained, but, Hmm. but I've had classes full of nurses who want to know what they can learn about, you know, people of other faiths that'll help them be better nurses or coaches who want to know about, about the fasting traditions of other religions so they can be better coaches. And Hmm. I mean, I could just, I could go on and on about people in all these majors, all these things they want to do with their lives um, who are, are realizing that religion could help them be better X, Ys, or Zs. And I'm not even talking now about their, their personal mm. faith, but about ways that they interact with their neighbors. Now, the sailboat train thing, I've actually found 20-year-olds better at that than I am. Interesting. They, know, they know they're not going to work the same job their whole lives. They know they're not. Mm. And so their, Great point. their discussions have more to do with their purpose than their mm. jobs, have more to do with what they want to create in this world, what they want to be part of. And they can see that that might take several different forms, and a number of them even keeping salary separate from meaning. They know they'll do some things to make a salary, but that's not going to be where the meaning comes in. So
0: mm, well, that's interesting. I don't know that we were granted that permission to think like that. <laughs> no, no. no, ours was uh, at least for me. Uh, my. Um, the narrative I sort of received was much more prescriptive than that, that there is definitely a calling. It looks like one thing. Good luck. I hope you figure it out or else your <laughs> life's a waste.
1: And, you know,
0: I still hear people say that. I, You know, I, I will hear this teaching come from teachers uh, that are my peers and say things like, I don't want to get to heaven one day and find out that I left a bunch of stuff on the table that God had for me. And that kind of teaching is freaking terrifying. I, I hate the idea. I actually hate that theology that we might actually get to heaven one day and discover that it really was all about our works and behavior after all you know, that Jesus really wasn't enough and come to find out God actually is disappointed.
1: You know, I just think that's terrible theology. It's awful. There was Um, one, one slip in your envelope and you didn't open it and do it. Yes.
0: Like, well, I guess I'm going to, you're going to get in by the skin of your teeth, but you blew it. You know, I just think, Oh no, I don't want to be a Christian. If that's the God I have to face one day, like I surely, I cannot be that powerful, but um, I really appreciate the freedom that you um, that you give us as a teacher, um, to, to have some flexibility in there and to know that God can be holy in any circumstance, in any life, in any scenario, in any career path. Um, and rather he just so deeply wants us to belong to him, which is, I think the end game. I, um, I I would love, because you mentioned it, um, now that you are speaking of it, I would I would love to hear you talk a little bit about your local church and what it is to you and what you have come to love about it.
1: And I shouldn't talk only about the local church, but I still it's funny to have written a book called Leaving, Leaving Church. church and, then, right. and I find out <laughs> the church never left me. It just yes, keeps inviting that. me back, which is such a merciful thing in itself. Yes. So so as much as I inhabit what Richard Rohr calls what does he call it? The outside edge of the inside or something like that. I love that. I have that. Yes, me too. But uh, as much as I love being out there, oh, there's nothing like coming home to the center. There's nothing like coming into a church community where I know the hymns and and know the people. And where I live, there's only one Episcopal church. We're the little bonsai boutique church. And Uh I just wouldn't have it not be there. I mean, I I fund it. I... um, uh I it's one of my duties to take the priest out on a regular basis and I hope this hmm. doesn't offend listeners. Buy him a glass of wine. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs>
0: offend my listeners, so I assure you. <laughs> <laughs> that you just endeared yourself
1: to them is what you did. Well, I just yes. I find pastors and people who want to be pastors some of the most Remarkable people, you know, talk about people willing to take risks and have their hearts broken and have their egos Mm. tranquilized. Welcome to the ministry. This this will do it for you. You are speaking truth. So I, I... I'm a great I'm a great fan, though I'm no longer at the center of it. And I can be a loving critic as well, but I, I want my mm. local church to be there and I want to do anything I can to make sure it is. I want it there for children, I want it there for newcomers, I want it there for visitors, mm. I want it for the birds who come and eat berries out of the trees. I want it there. Mm. So
0: I love that. That's really beautiful. And I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. Um we just have a little local church and it is so simple and it is full of ragamuffins and including all the leadership I'll have you know and it's just so lovely it's Mm. I just find so much Jesus there and it's such a tiny little outpost of hope in our community and I just I I do love the local church for that and I've learned the older I've gotten because I've been in church work my whole adult life that I am able now just older to absolutely celebrate churches and all their diversity and be just as grateful that they are shining their light in their way, in their space, even though it's a different way that I either understand God or come to find Him. But mm-hmm. um, thank goodness for all these little outposts of light um, collectively shining. Yes, thank so goodness true. for it. Thank goodness for it. So I know with, with so much going on in our world today, um, it's such a weird time to be alive. Um, you have said, uh, often that you turn to the writing and the thoughts and the teaching of other people um, to make sense of everything of what's happening in the world today of faith, um, of faithfulness. So I would love to know um, who are some of the, the thinkers or the writers or teachers that you turn to, um, to learn from, or when you're wanting to make sense of the world or sort of expand your worldview?
1: This is always such a dicey question, isn't it?
0: Sure, it sure is. And of course, when somebody asks me, I immediately forget everything I've ever read. Uh, I can't think of a single person in the world. I can't think of a single pastor. Nobody. My brain goes blank.
1: Yeah, I um, I have a frequently asked questions page on my website, and I try to change what are you reading now often to remember to do that. Hmm. And one reason it's dicey is I want to say recognizable names, right? Because if people want to follow up like Wendell Berry, who can miss him, or Tom, Thomas Merton. Mm. Um, I also have people in other traditions that I read a lot, like Pema Chodron from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and Jonathan Sachs, who's Mm. an Orthodox rabbi, and Ibu Patel, who is a young Muslim, and um, Howard Thurman, who's one of my sages. I sort of have two categories, sages who are older mm. and mm. surfers who are younger, because I have to look both ways for I people love to teach me about the world. So I love this. So uh, my surfers, you know, include, um, Greg Ellison, who is a student of Howard Thurman. I mean, not mm-hmm. directly, he's more like grandson theologically, mm-hmm. but he's, he's writing about, um, especially young black men in America mm, and all okay. people in America, but especially, you know, the young black men in America in light of what's happened in, in recent years. And and Ibu Patel is a young man relative to me who writes about mm. um, how young people in particular can come together across faith and find their faith is strengthened by knowing one another instead of That's challenged. Good. Kate Bowler, who teaches yeah. at Duke, is a wonderful, fresh yeah. voice. I love reading her. And Elizabeth Dias, who just um, became the religion reporter for the New York Times. Ah, oh,
0: yeah. read her
1: in Time Magazine for years, but she's one of the people I also read to help me see the world through younger eyes who make different and in many ways, better sense mm. of things. And Jen Hatmaker, did I mention her?
0: Obviously, I, <laughs> so. I love your list. So first of all, I want my listeners to know that we will put up links on the website, yeah. um, on the transcript of this episode to every single person Barbara just named. Oh, gosh. Um, and I appreciate that you listed such a diverse, um, lineup because my tendency, and I, I wonder if it is, isn't just a human tendency is to reach for teachers and leaders who more or less already occupy the space we're in. Mm -hmm. You know, that's sort of a homogenous voice, one that's Mm going to reinforce what we already think, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, and, you know, stamp our worldview with an approved, with approval. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is incredibly challenging and fruitful to give yourself permission to read way outside your, your space way, way outside. I mean, all the way down the street, even, um, it's so good for us. It's so good for our minds and good for our hearts and our souls and our faith. And so, I I thank you for giving us all those names and I'll make sure that everybody has access to that whole list. So
1: that's wonderful. Thank you. Here
0: we are Mm -hmm. at the end. So we're wrapping up the show like we do and we get the honor to ask you, um, a matriarch of our question that we love so much. Um, what is saving your life right now? Mm.
1: If you could look out my back window, you would see a little garden plot that has pink bleeding hearts and kind of salmon-colored um, fire poker flowers and hyacinths. And what is saving my life now, it sounds so cliche, but it is the reminder that life returns.
0: Uh-huh.
1: It's, I've just come through a year I sold my mother's house last Tuesday and it's been a year Mm. of moving her to assisted living and being with her when she died and getting Mm. her buried and cleaning out 50 years in the basement. And, and that life returns is just Mm. amazing. And to have a year in which you said earlier the sun comes up again. When spring cycles around, I know it's not the same as death and resurrection. But I'll tell you what, it reminds me that life and death um, are in a in a running cycle with each other. They coexist, they complete each other, and it it. Uh, so, what's saving my life now is springtime. Is this eruption of green and caterpillars mm. and beauty right out my window? Um, that that underlines a fundamental Christian trust that death carries the seeds of life, that to be afraid of death is going to be to be afraid of life, and that God's faithful mm. through that whole round, around and around and around. So, so that's what's saving my life right now, and that answer changes weekly.
0: Ah, uh, I love that. That made me cry. <laughs> Thank you for that. I th- I think I needed to hear that. <laughs> that that life does return. It does. It and does. Even after like loss that you think will just break your heart in half, yeah. even then, even yeah. then it returns. Thank you for that. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on today. I appreciate not just your time, but just who you are and um, what an important teacher you are to my generation and how special your voice is and how much it's mattered to my own life. So Sorry, why am I, I'm struggling and I knew that I would, but I just, I appreciate you and I love you. And, um, and I want my listeners to know that everything, all your things, your books, your website will have every single link available because, um, now I know that if, if some of my listeners have just met you for the first time, they are positively going to want to follow you and read your work. And so we'll have all that available. So thank you so much um, oh. for being on today. I am so, so grateful.
1: You know, when we meet each other this summer, we can go straight to the embrace, right? Straight to it. I mean, full frontal,
0: (laughs) full frontal.
1: (laughs) I can't wait. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you,
0: Barbara. Well, I think I handle that well. (laughs) Oh, I love her so dearly and I appreciate her, um, Leading us so beautifully. So, guys, everything Barbara Brown Taylor related is going to be over on my website. It's com. I just click the podcast. Um, Tab under it, we have this whole interview transcribed, which for an interview like this that has so many nuggets of wisdom is actually a fabulous tool. So you don't have to keep stopping the podcast um, to write down important lines and points and nuggets. You can just go to my website and it's all written out for you. Also, we have pictures over there and bonus material and all kinds of extra resources. That is a fabulous, fabulous tool for you. Don't forget to use um, the podcast page on my website because we've just filled it with amazing things for you. And um, all the links to her sites and and books will be there for you, too, so you can find everything you need. So, um, obviously, I love this series, um, and I do not want you to miss next week. We continue to invite really provocative and interesting and thoughtful guests who are leading us really well through exploring faith in a way that's not fear-based and um, but rather really open-handed and open-hearted and um i, I think leading us toward a a, a beautiful path um, within the church and our generation so don't miss it Um, I will see you back next week. Thank you for spending your time with us um, today. Thank you for all your amazing reviews and ratings on the podcast. That's just so great for us and so good for podcasts in general. So I appreciate every one of you that takes three minutes to do that. Thank you so much. Um, Guys, have a great week and I'll see you next time. Hey, guys. We're back for another segment of Jen's Favorite Things. So this is the part of the show where I share about some wonderful companies that are producing amazing products and giving back to charitable organizations and really worthy nonprofits. Plus, they have exclusive discounts and extras just for you, our podcast listeners. So here are today's favorites. Make getting dressed the easiest thing you do all day with Style Challenges, an online personal styling program that gives you all the tools you need to build a stylish wardrobe at a fraction of the cost of a personal stylist. So get $10 off with the code ten at stylechallenges.com. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.